So 1 Peter chapter 1, we're going to be looking at verses 3 through verse uh, 9. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith, for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you've been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, you love. Though you now do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Let's pray. So, Lord, this is your word. This is, the, this is your word that you've given us this morning to read, Lord, and to know. And we thank you for your word, God. We thank you that you have spoken to us, Lord, that your spirit has filled us, and that you've saved us, God. And so, Lord, we just pray that you would anoint this time. Anoint your word, God. Let this time be a sacred time where we can know you, God. Hear your voice and understand what your will is for us. Lord, I pray that if anyone is here today struggling with some kind of maybe anxiety or worry or depression or sin or whatever that is, God, but that they could leave it, Lord, and they could just experience you, Lord. And so, Lord, I pray that you bless this time. Bless your word, Lord, and, and Lord, just... Anoint me that I can speak your word, Lord, because I know I'm, I'm nothing better than just a vessel. And so, Lord, I just pray that you anoint this time and help us understand your word. We pray this in Jesus' name, and we all say, amen. amen. You guys can be seated. <clears throat> you know, what I've noticed in life is that there's times when life can be really good, right? You know, there, there's times when life can be really good when, you know, when we get married, right? When we go on our honeymoon, when we buy our first house, Right? When we see the first baby get born, you know, when we get a new job, we get a new job promotion, when we finally saved up enough money for that new car, right? There's times when life can be really good, right? And then there's times when life is not really good, when life is not only not really good, but it's really hard. And I honestly think that as Christians, the tough times can be even tougher because we know God. What do I mean by that? Well, we know God. We know his nature. We know that God is kind. We know that God is loving. We know that he's merciful. We know that he's gracious. And so when we go through these tough times, when we endure these trials, these afflictions, these persecutions, it's very difficult for us to reconcile the trial with the good nature of God, isn't it? And so what happens, and tell me if you've, you know, not, not tell me, but how many of us have ever endured a trial and have ever uttered the words, God, why did you allow this to happen? I'll tell you, I have said that several times, right? And it almost seems as if it is our default nature that when we undergo a trial, when we go through a tough time in life, it is so much easier for us to automatically put the blame on the Lord, right? And to say, God, why did you allow this? I know you're loving. I know you're good. I know you're kind. Why did you allow this to happen, right? And so it seems as if that's our default response. And so taking into account this letter of 1 Peter and also taking into account 
what it seems to be our default nature, what we can find and what we can see is that there is, in fact, a better way that we can respond to trials. Or there is, in fact, a better way that we can address our affliction. And so if you're a note taker, that is our title of our study today, Addressing Affliction. How can we address our affliction? Well, Peter addresses very that. Now, this letter of 1 Peter, he wrote this letter because he was writing to believers who were undergoing a tremendous amount of persecution, a tremendous amount of trials. These people that were uh, that Peter was writing to, they were suffering. They were genuinely suffering. And so Peter, he writes this letter to address their affliction, right? So that he can encourage them, but also show them that there's a better way to respond to trials and just instead of just immediately being like, God, why do you hate me, right? So let's go ahead, let's look at verse three and let's see how, how does Peter address their affliction? Let's read it. It says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So there's a kind of a lot there, right? There's a lot of different pieces there. But he starts off and he says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So in addressing their affliction, in writing to these people who are going through a tough time, what does he say? He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, what are you saying? Is he saying, praise the Lord. And now, isn't that so weird? And I, I want you to put yourself in the, in the shoes of the believers that Peter was writing to. Here you are, you're going through a tough time. Whatever that trial might be, you are in the middle of it, right? You are in the middle of this trial, and you are suffering, right? And you know that Peter knows. And here you are, you receive a letter from Peter, and you open it up, and instead of seeing, hey, I am so sorry that you are going through this trial. I am so sorry you're going through this trial. I'm praying for you. Instead of seeing that, what do you see? Praise God. Now, I don't know about you, but if I was in that position, I would read that, and it would kind of take me back a little bit. It would take me back a little bit, and I would be like, okay, hold on a second. Do you know what, I, do you know what I'm going through? Like, I, I'm not necessarily in the mood to praise the Lord right now. You know, I'm kind of I'm suffering here, Peter, right? And so it makes me ask myself, why would Peter, before he addresses anything, why would Peter start with celebratory worship? Why would he worship the Lord before he addresses anything? Now, make no mistake, folks. Peter does understand their situation, but he's chosen not to write in a somber, quiet, you know, peaceful tone. He's, he's, he's chosen not to do that, but he's chosen instead to begin with joyful worship. Why? Because Peter's a leader in the church. He's an apostle, right? And as a leader, what he is doing is he is demonstrating to them that there is another way that they can address their affliction, right? He's not doing this out of insensitivity, right? He's not being somebody who goes up to someone who's mourning and is like, oh my gosh, you just need to celebrate in the Lord. He's not doing that. He's showing them an example. He's providing to them an example. And how do we know that? You see that word there, blessed, at the beginning of verse 3? right? That word is translated from the Greek, the Greek word called eulogetos. Now that might sound familiar. Sounds like the word eulogy, right? It's where we get our word eulogy. And in a eulogy, you guys might know, typically what happens at a funeral is that one person typically is chosen to give the eulogy on behalf of the deceased, right? And regardless of how 
much pain that they're in, regardless of how hard it hurts, regardless of any of those things, the person who's chosen to give the eulogy is chosen to muscle through the pain, muscle through the anxiety, muscle through the depression, to speak on behalf of the, of the deceased. But not negatively, right? You've never seen a eulogy where someone's like, man, this guy never paid his mortgage. This guy was never... You don't see that, right? But instead, the guy who gives the eulogy, he speaks on behalf of the deceased in a way that reminds people of the joy that they brought in this life. Now, what Peter is doing is he is embodying a eulogy that in spite of what's going on, in spite of the affliction, in spite of the problem, in spite of the, ref- of the circumstance, what is he doing? He's choosing to rejoice. He's choosing to rejoice. Regardless of what's going on, regardless of how tough it might seem, He's showing them that we can choose to rejoice. And so instead of saying, why God, you know, and all those things and what our default response might be, we can choose to rejoice. And so what we see here as the main idea for this text is that Peter is addressing, he is showing us that the proper way for us to address our affliction is to rejoice. Now, you might be like, okay, well, well, what do I rejoice in? Well, the fact of the matter is that there's millions of reasons for us to rejoice in the Lord, right? There really is. But for the sake of time and for the sake that parchment paper was kind of expensive back then, Peter gives us three reasons why we can rejoice, right? So the first way that we can rejoice, the first way that we can address our affliction is this. We can rejoice in our salvation. We can rejoice in our salvation, not only in our salvation, but in how we were saved. Look at it again, verse 3. He says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Notice what he does not say. He does not say, blessed be God because we're saved, period. He says, blessed be God because this is how he saved us. You understand that? He says, blessed be God because of his mercy, because we've been begotten again, and because of uh, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, right? And so you might say, okay, well, Ryan, why is it important for me to know how I was saved, right? Because that's what Peter's doing here. He's not only saying, hey, bless the Lord because we're saved. No, he's saying, bless the Lord because this is how you were saved. And you might say to me, well, Ryan, why do I need to know these details? Why do I need to know how I was saved? Because, folks, if you know how you are saved, then guess what? Those details don't change. If you know how you are saved, then you become like what the Apostle Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter 4. He says, let us no longer be children who are tossed to and fro by every wind of false doctrine. If you know how you're saved, then when someone comes knocking on your door and says, hey, guess what? Uh, No, you, you weren't saved by only grace. You actually need to be baptized into our church. You can say, no, that's incorrect. Or when someone knocks on your door and says, hey, actually, no, you're not only saved by grace, but you need to do good works. Then you can say, no, that's not true because I know the Bible. So not only can we rejoice in our salvation, but we can also rejoice in how we were saved, right? So When we look at how we were saved, we see three different things, right? Our salvation, now it's not an exclusive list, but this is what Peter mentions. He mentions three things regarding our salvation. He says the first is mercy. 
The second is that we were begotten again to a living hope. And the third is through the resurrection of Jesus. So let's look at those three things, right? The first one is, is mercy. The mercy of God. That's the first step of salvation, right? So you might say, well, Ryan, what is mercy? Well, to truly understand mercy, what we need to understand is we need to understand who we are and we need to understand who God is, right? So who are we? Who, who am I? You know, as a, as a youth group leader, I hear that question all the time. Ryan, I'm just trying to figure out who I am, you know? I'll tell you who you are. This is what Romans chapter 3 says who we are. It says this, there is no one who is righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There's no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They've all together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are an open grave. Their tongues practice deceit. Folks, do I need to continue? It doesn't look good for us, does it? Isaiah even says this, because you might say, well, Ryan, that's a New Testament thing. No, it's not. Isaiah says this. Isaiah 64, verse 6 says this. We have all, not just some, all of us have become like one who is unclean. And all of our righteous deeds, what does that mean? All of our good works, they're what to God? They are like polluted garments. You know, Charles Spurgeon says this. As we are by nature, justice condemns us. Holiness frowns upon us. Power crushes us. Truth confirms the threatening of the law, and it's the wrath of God that fulfills it. And so the answer to who are we? We are hopelessly wicked. We are hopelessly depraved. We are hopelessly wretched. There is no chance ever that we could ever, according to our own selves, ever hope to get to the kingdom of God. Never. Not going to happen. We are way too wicked. We are way too... Uh, I would say succumb to the power of sin. That is humanity. Apart from God, that is who we are. Apart from Jesus, that is who we are. Paul even says in Romans chapter 7, he says, I know that nothing good dwells in me. Nothing. So that's us. Okay, well, who's God? And as I was preparing for this message, I kind of realized, man, describing who God is would take the entire study, wouldn't it? So instead, you know, I thought it would be good to read from this passage from the book of Isaiah. Uh, it's a very familiar passage, so let me just read it. It's Isaiah chapter 6, it says this. In the year that, the king, that king Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple, and above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face, two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. One cried out to the other, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door were shaken just by the voice of him who cried out. And the house was filled with smoke. And so I said, woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. And then one of the seraphim flew to me, and he had in his hand a live coal, which he had taken with the tongs from the altar of God. And he touched my mouth with it and said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away. Your sin is purged. And then and I heard a voice saying this. The Lord said, whom shall I send? And who will, go or who will go for us? And then I said, here am I. Send me. So what do we see in this text? We see God, right? He's mighty. He's powerful. He's holy. He's majestic. He's way above our ways, right? He doesn't reason with human logic. He doesn't reason with human wisdom. He's high above and he's lifted up. He's glorious. He's powerful. He's majestic, right? There is, he's mighty, and he is terrifyingly powerful. 
And we also see one other thing. We see his mercy. How do we see his mercy? Isaiah, he's a good guy. Isaiah, for all intents and purposes, he's a prophet. He's a man of faith. And he's sitting there. He sees God. And he starts repenting. And what does God do? He delivers a coal to Isaiah. And he purges his sin. Did Isaiah earn it? No. Did Isaiah work for it? No. But he purged Isaiah's sin solely because it was his will to do so. And then what happened? God said, whom shall I send? And Isaiah was right there. He said, send me. So the mercy of God, what is the mercy of God? Well, what we see is that there then is this massive gap between us and between God. This massive, infinitely wide gap that is impossible for any man to ever cross. Impossible. Never going to happen. And mercy is that despite our wretchedness, God bridged that gap. And we could even say that that's why Peter's celebrating. Because it was God that bridged that gap. The Bible says that God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. The mercy of God is that despite who we are, God pours his mercy out on us. And not just a little bit of mercy. Peter says he poured out his abundant mercy, right? Jesus even says in Matthew chapter 9, he says, For I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Folks, if you're here today, do you know this? That regardless of how much sin you are in, God desires to show you mercy. You are not, I mean, I hear this way too many times from, the, from, the, from our youth group kids, man. And it, it breaks my stinking heart. How many kids, and even adults too, how many of us have this mindset of thinking, oh, I got to get good before I come to church. Oh, I got to stop sinning before I come to church. I'm not good enough to, become to, to come to God. Folks, that's the point. You're not good enough. You'll never be good enough. And if you keep on living in that lifestyle, you never, you'll never experience the abundant mercy because you can never cross that gap because it was never your work in the first place. It was all of God's. It was all of God's. And so he desires to show us mercy. He desires to show us abundant mercy. Why? Because it is his will to show us mercy. Folks, God does not show us mercy because he needs to. God shows us mercy because he wants to. So we've been clothed. If we are here today and Jesus is our Lord, we've been clothed with mercy, all because of the will of God. And so after we've been clothed with mercy, what happens? Look there in verse 3, 1 Peter. He says, uh, according to his abundant mercy, we've been begotten again to a living hope. Now that word begotten, you might, it might sound familiar. We, we've seen it all throughout the Bible. But the word to begot comes from the word to create. It, spe it specifically talks about a father having a son. You might have remembered Abraham begot Isaac. Isaac begot Jacob, Jacob begot the 12, and so on and so forth, right? To begot literally means that there was a person, and then he created another person, right? Like my, my own little son, right? He's five months old. Six months ago, he wasn't here. Well, he was in her belly, but, you know, you, you understand what I'm saying, right? <laughs> but the point being is that where there was nothing, something created something. Does that make sense? That is the idea of begotten. And so we can say that God created us where there was no faith, where there was no righteousness, where there was no holiness. God created that. He, he poured us, he, he poured his mercy onto that and he created that, right? Which is why we say we are a new creation. I'm born again, right? 
Because God did that. He begot us. He created us, right? And so we see that God created us, but not only did he just, just create us and like, okay, whatever. No, he created us to what? Verse three, he begot us to a living hope. Folks, because of God's abundant mercy, you are not only saved from your sin, you are saved to a living hope. Does that make sense? You are not saved only from hell. You are not only saved from sin. You are not only saved from punishment, but you are saved to something. What does that mean? God did not have mercy on you. God did not have mercy on you so that you could live your life as a passive Christian. God did not save you for you to do nothing. Okay? God saved you for a purpose. God saved you so that you would have a living hope. Saved from something to something, right? A full-on 180 degree, degree turn. You turn from this way, you walk that way, right? Not just saved from, but saved to. Saved to a living hope. What does that mean? That is a hope that is active. It's a hope that is alive. It's involved in everything you do, right? You are saved to a active hope. And hope of what? A hope in heaven, right? That means that your hope doesn't just like turn on and off. You are saved to a living hope. Man, praise the Lord for that, right? And so we're clothed in abundant mercy. We're saved to a living hope, right? God gives our life a purpose, right? The third thing, the third part of our salvation, again, this isn't exclusive, but this is what Peter mentions to us, right? But it's this, it all happened because of who? Because of Jesus, right? Look what it says there, verse three. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, from the dead. Paul says this in Ephesians chapter 2. He says, because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, there's a term again, rich in mercy, made us alive. That's the idea to be God, where we were not, we now are. He made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in our transgressions. That's the idea, the mercy, the, uh, the bridging of that massive gap, right? He made us alive, even though we were dead in our transgressions. And then he says in verse 8, for it is by works that you've been saved? No, for it is by grace that you've been saved. Through faith, not from yourself, it is a gift from God, not by works, so that no one can boast. So what does this all mean? You might say, Ryan, get to the point, dude, right? Folks, remember, Peter, he's celebrating in his salvation, right? And he's remembering how he was saved. And as we look at how we were saved, we find that all of it, 100%, no room for us, was God's idea. We are saved because it was God's idea to save us. No part of that did we do? We did not earn our salvation. We did not work for it. None of that. And it's important for us to know. You might say, okay, well, Ryan, why do I need to know all this? And I, and I, and I mentioned it again at the beginning, so that you don't fall away to false doctrines, so that people don't come up to you and, and say, well, that's not actually true. You actually need to work for your salvation. No, that's not true. If we need to work for our salvation, is Jesus's blood that holy then? If we need to work for our salvation, then that means the work that Christ did on the cross was not complete. And so that when he said, it is finished, he was a liar. It was 100% because of God. It was none, none of it was because of you. 
And Paul, he actually mentions this in Romans chapter 8. You might remember. He asked this rhetorical question. He says, what can separate us from the love that we have in Christ Jesus? He gives 17 different examples, and he says, can this separate us from, our, from love and God? Can this? Can this? Can this? And then he finally summarizes, and he says this. No, nothing can separate us from the love that we have in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so, folks, if you are here today, and you believe in Jesus, let me tell you, you are saved. No ifs, ands, or buts. If he is your Lord, you are saved. If Jesus is your Lord, and only you know, I'm not going to tell you you're saved or not, but if he is your Lord, you are saved. Because it was a work from God. If he is your Lord, you are saved. You are going to heaven. You are redeemed by the blood of Jesus. No amount of sin could ever pull you out of your salvation. No amount of your mistakes could pull you out of your salvation. No trial could ever cause you to lose your salvation. And so you might say, well, Ryan, how can this encourage me? Because, folks, regardless of what happens in this life, we know, we know that our salvation is nothing to do with our own selves, but it is completely because of God. And folks, and I hope you remember this, if God willed to save us, then God willed to keep us. Man, remember that? Put that on your fridge. I don't, right? If God willed to save us, God willed to keep us. One of the things I'm constantly, not constantly, but it's a, it's a reoccurring theme in our youth group is, is the kids, you know, it's a hard thing to understand and to confidently be able to say, I'm saved. And nothing's going to change that. And so we're, that's something we're constantly, you know, trying to encourage the kids. No, you are saved. If you believe in Jesus, you are going to heaven. And they say, well, I'm a sinner in this. Well, right, yes. But folks, your sin does not remove you because if, if works does not earn your way into salvation, sin does not earn your way out of salvation. Does that make sense? Because it's a thing of God, it's always a thing of God. And we can be encouraged by that because if he willed to save us, he willed to keep us. Nothing can change that. Folks, we are not saved because we're good people. We're not saved because we earned it. But on the contrary, what does the Bible say? And tell me if you know this verse. We love God because he what? First loved us. We love God because he first loved us. If we understand that our salvation is completely attributed to God, none of it has to do anything with us, then whatever happens, we can always rejoice, regardless of the trial, that because of what God did, I get to look forward to an eternity in heaven with him. Because of what God did, I get to see my passed away relatives. Because of what God did, I have a purpose in this life. Because of what God did, I have hope for my life. Because of what God did, I know that I'm saved because of what who did because of what God did not of your own selves it is not of works so that no one can boast right Ephesians chapter 2 so how often this is a question for all of us how often do we rejoice in our salvation even in a trial or even in the perfect times of life how often do we rejoice in that folks if I, can I encourage you if you are struggling through a trial right now let me remind you, you have the right. As Americans, we un understand very well what a right is, right? You have the right as a child of God to celebrate and to rejoice in your salvation, to rejoice that you are saved and to rejoice that you are going to heaven. And that we should have the mindset that the psalmist has in Psalms chapter 13 who says, I have trusted in your steadfast love 
my heart shall rejoice in your salvation. We have the right to have that, folks, right? And so to summarize, regardless of the trial, we can rejoice in our salvation. Amen? So that's the first thing. Now, <laughs> we got a few more things to go. Now, the second thing is this. I want to try to speed up here, right? The second thing, the first thing we can rejoice in our salvation and rejoice in the details of our salvation. Not just I'm saved and I don't know how, but no, we can know how we were saved, right? The second thing is this. We can rejoice knowing that we have an inheritance in heaven waiting for us. Look at there at verse 4. He says, or actually at the end of verse 3, he says, uh, to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, and does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. So what is he saying here? He's saying that, again, for the second time, we're not just saved from something, but we are what? To something, right? Saved from sin, saved to hope, saved to an inheritance, right? Now, this idea of an inheritance, you might say, Ryan, what's an inheritance, right? Well, an inheritance, well, first off, I would say it's a good question. Inheritance is something that we inherit from a parental figure or from our family, right? You typically don't have to earn your inheritance, right? That's typically something that's due to you just because of who, what your last name is and who your grandfather was and the whole nine yards, right? It might be land, it might be money, it might be a house, whatever, right? But an inheritance has nothing to do with what you've done or this or that, you know, typically, but, you know... It's due to you because of the family that you are in, right? And so what is this inheritance that we have, right? Well, the Bible says that we've been adopted into the family of God. And so because of the work of Jesus, we now have access to this inheritance that's in heaven, right? So I don't know about you, but I'd be like, okay, well, cool. What's my, what's the inheritance I'm going to get, right? Like what, what do I have waiting for me? You know, like, what is it, right? Well, Peter doesn't really tell us. <laughs> he, he doesn't really tell us, right? But we look at this inheritance, and here's what we know. We know what the inheritance is not. Look at verse 4 again. He says, to an inheritance, which is what? It's incorruptible, it's undefiled, and it does not fade away, right? And so we know that this inheritance, it doesn't corrupt, it doesn't defile, and it doesn't fade away. The only thing we do know about this inheritance that we have waiting for us is that it's reserved in heaven for you. Now, interesting, right? Where it says for you, it's not like y'all. It's like you specifically. It's like put your name there, reserved in heaven for Ryan Mesa, right? It's, it's for you, right? You have an inheritance in heaven waiting for you, right? And so we can rejoice knowing that there's something awesome that's waiting for us. And even though Peter doesn't really talk about it here, what we do know, because we can look at it throughout the rest of the Bible, if there's only one thing, there's only one thing spoken of throughout the entirety of Scripture, which is undefiled, incorruptible, and doesn't fade away. And so what is it? Well, you might say, well, is, is, is heaven our inheritance? Well, no, because the inheritance is waiting for us in heaven, right? So it's not, it can't be heaven, and not only that, but Jesus himself says heaven and earth will pass away. So even heaven itself will at one point in time fade away, right? So what is it? What is our inheritance? Well, the Bible says this in Numbers chapter 18. It says this, The Lord said to Aaron, you will have no inheritance in their land, nor will you have any share among them. I am your share, and I am your inheritance, says the Lord. So folks, we can know that God is our inheritance. We can know that it is God who is waiting for us in heaven. He doesn't change. He doesn't corrupt. He doesn't fade away. He's going to be there. He's been there. He's going to be there. He's always going to be there. And guess what? You get God. 
How cool is that? Let's talk about that, like mercy, right? Like the fact that we don't even deserve it. God's like, not only am I going to cross that bridge for you, but guess what? You get me. Like, dude, like, come on. You know, like, how does that not get you excited? It gets me excited, you know? <laughs> I get really excited, you know? So the second thing that we know that we can rejoice in is that we can rejoice knowing that when we live, when we leave this life, we get God, folks. God's waiting for us, man. And you know what? Paul even knew this, right? For Paul said in the book of Philippians, he said, for me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. To live is Christ, but to die is gain. Regardless of what's happening in this life, folks, we can always rejoice that what's coming is so much better, right? There's no potholes in heaven, right? <laughs> Praise the Lord, right? You know, there's, there's only one government, and it's a good government, Amen. There's no need for us to have locks on our doors. There's no, none of that, man. I'd hope that there's like, you know, lawn care too in there in heaven, you know. <laughs> That'd be nice, you know, in parts of your lawn where there's grass and then there's dirt. You know, that doesn't happen in heaven, you know. So we can rejoice in our salvation. We can rejoice that God is our inheritance, right? And the third thing is this. We can rejoice that God is going to protect us until we get there. Now, you might say to me today, well, Ryan, that's all well and good, but dude, look, man, like, I don't really plan on dying for another 40 years, man, and that's when I'm going to go to heaven. What about, like, today? You know what I'm saying? You might look at me and be like, dude, like, okay, that's, that's then, but what about now, man? Because that's great and everything, but dude, I'm struggling now. I'm struggling today. I was struggling yesterday, dude, right? You might say that to me, and, and you know what, man? Like, God is our protection today. We don't, we don't have only something to rejoice in tomorrow, but we can rejoice in something today, right? Look at verse 5. It says this. or Actually, let's look at the end of verse 4, just you know, for the context. It says, it says that it's reserved in heaven for you, and then he says in verse 5, who, so that's us, are kept by the power of God um, through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time, right? So, we see this idea here, right? We see this idea throughout, Bible, throughout the, you know, the entirety of the Bible that God is our protection, right? Psalm 61 says this, For you have been my refuge. You have been a strong tower against the enemy. Psalms 91 says this, He will cover you with his feathers, and under his wings will you find refuge. His faithfulness will be your shield and rampart. Folks, there is a consistent understanding throughout the entirety of the Bible that God is our protection, He's been our protection in the days past. He will be our protection in the days future. But he is our protection today. Today. You know, I want to read this verse to you from, from the book of Joshua. Every time I'm like flipping through the Bible, I sing this little like Sunday school song to like remind where Joshua is. So to put your kids in Sunday school, it ends up yielding fruit. So the book, <laughs> so Joshua chapter one, verse five says this. It says, no man shall be able to stand before you with all of the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you, nor will I forsake you. We've, that's a common phrase in the Bible, isn't it? We, we hear that all the time, right? Jesus even said that. I will not leave you, and I will not forsake you. So we can rejoice in tomorrow. Yes, there's heaven waiting for us, inheritance, the whole nine yards. We got something good to look forward to. But today, when we're struggling now, when it's raining today, and our, our, our tire is flat on the side of the road, what can we rejoice in? We can rejoice that God is our protector today. We can rejoice in that. And how often do we? 
How often do we rejoice knowing that we have access to the power of God for our protection, right? And so specifically here, Peter is acknowledging that the very power of God is a refuge for us. I want you to think about it. The power of God which said, let there be light and sent the entire universe into motion. You get to hide there, dude. You get to hang out. <laughs> Sorry, it's a little bit of the, I know you guys are laughing at me, whatever. <laughs> We get to hide out and we get to hang out in the protection of the Lord, in the power of God, the power of God which spoke and it just simply was. That's not an exclusive aspect of God. Guys, we get to hang out there, man. We get to be protected by that very same power, not just tomorrow, but today. You know, when I was little, you know, this is, I know this may sound surprising, but I used to get bullied. I know, I know. But when I was, I, I used to get bullied and when I did, I, I would specifically ask my dad to bring me to school because when my dad would bring me to school and he'd bring me to the classroom, I remember that there was, um, he'd always like drop me off at the, oh wow, I did not expect that coming. <clears throat> he would drop me off at the door, you know, and I just remember that like when my dad would drop me off, he'd prep my little bag on the chair, man, and like, dude, like the bullies were like terrified of him, man, you know, and it's like all of a sudden they were like my best friend. I was like, what? You know, and, and so what happened was like, I wanted my dad to bring me to school so much more often because the bullies were terrified of my dad, you know? And, and, and whenever I went in with him, man, like it was like, I was walking in, like I was like, like you ever seen the president walk in with the secret service and they got like tons of like, you know, like motor cars in front of him and there's like a whole like, you know, that was like me with my dad, you know? And like, man, we have that in the Lord, don't we? We have that in the Lord, man, and we can rejoice in that. So God's our protector, isn't he? God's our protector today, you know, and, and I want you to notice, notice how this protection comes, right? Look at verse 5 again. So what does it say? It says, we are kept by the power of God through what? Through faith. Kept by the power of God through faith. What does that mean? That means this. Our faith in God, it is the activating power for the preserving power of God in our life. Our faith in God activates God's power in our life. What does that mean? Unbelieving people do not have access to refuge in God's power. That is a right strictly reserved for his children, right? My dad wasn't bringing like the bullies to school. My dad was bringing me to school, right? And so being able to be in the power of God that is reserved specifically for us as his adopted children, right? And so, look, look, guys, if you have faith in Jesus and he's your Lord, you can rejoice knowing that you have a place in the power of God for protection. You might say to me, Ryan, you know, I don't know how much longer I can make, make it through this trial. You know, you might say to me, Ryan, I don't, dude, like, I'm at the end of my rope here, man. Folks, it was never you going through that trial. You were being carried by the power of God through that trial. And you can rest in that. You can rest knowing, right, that it's the Lord carrying us through. And he's going to carry us from now all the way up until we receive our salvation, right? So Peter now, he's given us three different ways, right? He's given us, he's, given, he's, he's shown us that we can rejoice that God saved us. He's shown us that we can rejoice that God's waiting for us, right? And he can rejoice that God is protecting us, right? And I want us to notice how do all three of these things come into play during a trial? Look at it, verse 6. He says, in this, 
you greatly rejoice. The things that we just talked about, the salvation, the inheritance, the protection, in this, you greatly rejoice, right? And he's saying that in these things, we can greatly rejoice. So I just want to ask, when was the last time that you rejoiced in those things? When was the last time that you rejoiced in the fact that God saved you? And in the fact that you have him as an inheritance, in the fact that he is your protector, right? Because when we compare the reality of those things to the reality of our trial, right? And when we see the magnitude of how utterly massive God's redemption is, how big his mercy and his grace and his love, when we compare how massive those things are to the trial, well, first off, we realize how small it is, don't we? And second off, it allows us to rejoice. Not only just rejoice, but to greatly rejoice. But the opposite is also true. When Christ is not that big in your life, and he's not that powerful, and the the grace of God is not that big of a deal to you, well then, consequently, trials become ginormous, don't they? Right? So my question is, how big is God for you, right? Some might view salvation the same way that they view book clubs, right? Well, you know, I just go to this church because it works for me. Or, you know, you can go to that church because that works for you, you know? Or it's like, well, I only go to church because Meemaw has been for the past 90 years, and I just go to church with Meemaw, you know? (laughs) You might, and then people have reasons like that, don't they? That's the only reason why I do this whole thing is because, you know, whatever, my girlfriend wants me to come, you know? And so when Christ is just as big as like a crucifix on the wall, then consequently, the trials of life are ginormous, aren't they? Folks, let us not make a habit of minimizing the magnitude of God and maximizing the reality of our trials. Let us not make a habit in doing that. Let us correctly understand how big God is, right? And I want want us to all see the content of our trial. Look at verse 6, right? He says, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you've been grieved by various trials. So what is the nature of trials? Well, there's two things about the trials that we can pull apart. The first is that they happen for a little while. The second is that they're needed. So a little while, right? Awesome. This is temporary, man. Like, this is not going to be forever, right? That's something that we could probably put on a mug and be like, boom, look at that, you know? So trials are temporary, right? And so I want you to notice, look all the way back in verse 1 of 1 Peter. He says this. He says, to the who? Pilgrims. To the pilgrims of the dispersion. What does that mean? He's trying to amplify just how temporary their persecution is. He's trying to make sure that he can reinforce the idea, folks, this isn't forever. It's temporary, right? And so trials, they are always temporary. Now you might say, well, Ryan, like, you know, what about people who get in a car accident when they're 30 years old and they're paralyzed for the rest of their life? That seems pretty permanent, doesn't it? All trials are temporary in view of heaven. Because even in that circumstance, man, we got a new body waiting for us in heaven, don't we? We have a glorified body, right? The Apostle Paul talks about the difference between a tent, this body, and a mansion, the body that we get in heaven, right? All trials are always temporary, right? This life is not forever, folks. We have something good to, wait, to, to look forward to, right? So the first part is the temporary. The second part is this. They're needed. Trials are needed, and that's not an awesome thing. You don't put that on a coffee mug. You want to learn how to not have a good business? Put that on a coffee mug, man. 
Trials are needed. It's not a good thing that we want to read that, but it's, it's important that we understand that. Why are trials necessary? Look at verse 7. He says, you've been grieved by various trials that the genuineness of your faith being much more precious than gold, which perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So why are trials needed? So that the genuineness of our faith would be found to praise, honor, and glory. What does that mean? Trials, whether we like it or not, improve the content and improve the quality of our faith. Sometimes we need to go through trials. And we don't always know why. I mean, think about, the, think about Job, right? The Bible says in the book of Job that he was a righteous guy. You know, he, he always offered unto the Lord X, Y, and Z. And then there was this debate that was going on between Satan and, heaven, and, and, and God. Job never learned of that conversation. But nonetheless, he undergoes this trial, right? And so we don't know necessarily why the trial is happening. But you know what we can trust is that God is in control. Because Satan could not even touch Job without God's approval. Satan cannot even touch you with God allowing that, right? Now, make no mistake. Peter is not in any way suggesting that we have a careless attitude towards trials. He's not, right? But instead, when he uses the word to talk about trials, he, the word there kind of defines like a heaviness, right? It's the same word that is used to describe how Jesus felt in the Garden of Gethsemane, right? Or how we might feel when we lose a loved one. Like this, that, that pain that just weighs on you, right? And so to deny the magnitude of a trial can probably make the trial worse, right? And we know the Bible says, hey, weep with those who weep. Mourn with those who mourn. God is close to those who are brokenhearted. We know that, right? And so we don't need to have like this fake like attitude of like everything is great, you know, when we're going through like a trial. We don't need to do that, right? It's okay to, man, to like, to, like ask for prayer, you know, and to, and to allow others to like mourn with you, right? But be encouraged. This is what, you know, Warren Wearsby, he, he sums it up like this. He says, when God allows his children to go through a trial, he keeps his eye on the clock and he keeps his hand on the thermostat so that when the moment is complete, his children do not need to suffer one moment longer. So we can know on the bright side that when the trial is done, when we're done going through our trial, you know what happens? Our relationship with God improves. Look at verses eight and nine. It says, whom having not seen you love, Though now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy, inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So after the trial is done, we know that our love for God, our faith for God, right? They grow, they become improved, right? The content and the quality of our relationship with the Lord, it becomes improved, right? And so it's interesting because like, similarly, not, not really similarly, I guess, but like right now, you know, my wife and I, we're teaching our, our little son how to like roll over and, and to like put his neck up and the whole nine yards, you know, and he hates it. He does not enjoy doing it at all, you know, and like he will literally like scream as if he's in genuine pain. He's not, but he acts like it, you know, he's a, he's a drama boy, you know, he <laughs> gets that from his dad, you know, <laughs> so but he like is like, oh, I hate this, you know? But we're doing this so that eventually he can be walking, right? Because it'd be a little weird if he's five years old and not being able to like lift his neck and things like that. Because not because of any kind of, you know, I, I, I want to be, you know, sensitive there because I know that some people genuinely can't. But our son, who's, who can, and his parents failed to teach him to do so, right? And so in the same way, 
if, if we understand that as a, as a human parent, then we can know that God, in fact, also allows us to undergo certain trials so that we would become improved. You know, there's a circumstance that I commonly give to the youth group, right? And I say things like this. You know, someone might be able to say, why do you read your Bible every day? And you might be able to have an answer that says, well, when my dad passed away, I needed God. And I, I just, I needed him, man. And so I read my Bible every single day, and I haven't stopped since. Or someone might be able to say, you know, why did you become a Christian? Well, because I was driving home from a party one night, and I got in a car accident. And the paramedic, she had a cross on. And when I saw that, I realized God was reaching out to me. And so, folks, we know this, right? We know that when we come out of, out of a trial, man, like, our faith becomes improved, right? And so if you're here today, and you're going through a trial, can I encourage you that this trial, it might not seem like it. It has a good purpose, it does. We have to believe that. We have to keep our faith in the Lord, knowing that he knows what he's doing. God has not forgotten you. You are not forsaken. You are not forgotten. He is with you. And he is for you. And I also want to challenge you. During this trial, seek to rejoice in the Lord. Seek it. It's not going to be easy, man. But seek to rejoice in the Lord. Don't allow Satan a moment to get you to curse God like what he was trying to do with Job. Don't allow Satan to cause you to throw your faith away, but consciously choose to rejoice. Consciously choose to rejoice that you're saved, man, and that by no work of you could that have ever happened. Consciously choose to remember that inheritance and to remember God's waiting for you, right? He protects you now. Remember that. And remember that this trial, it's temporary, but it has a good purpose. Amen? Let's stand.